fourth chapter. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar 
and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Lord, may this be so. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All people thirst. All people thirst. All people seek to slake, which is an old word, or satiate that thirst. All people seek to satiate that thirst. Back when I was younger, I used to run cross-country. I know some of you are still runners. God bless you. If you've ever gone running out on a hot summer day, you know what it is to physically thirst, particularly if you didn't hydrate well before your run. As you get to the end of the race, your mouth is parched, your tongue sticks to the top of, of your mouth, and you just can't wait to get that little drop of water. But I want to tell you another story, a story about spiritual thirst from my own life. Some of you may or may not have heard this before, but back when I was in college, I was headed in a different direction than I am today. Not that I didn't believe in God, not that I didn't love God to a degree, but I wanted to go in my own direction. I wanted my own agenda. And so I was working in politics on political campaigns here in the state of Ohio. And I was finding it terribly unsatisfying. I was at the top of my game, or so I thought. You know, I was rubbing shoulders with the big wigs. I met Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel, Barbara Bush, all sorts of other big figures. And yet, I wasn't satisfied, I wasn't satiated because I was running in the exact opposite direction of where God wanted me to go. You see, I'd been called to be a priest probably at the age of seven. I can't quite remember how young it was. I'd had these recurring dreams about serving in the church and God saying, this is what you're supposed to do. And even when I got to college, I can still see it on my freshman door. There was my name card, Sean. And before Sean was F-R dot. It was for freshmen. But I looked at that and I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I am not going to be a priest. And so as I continued to go down that road, I became drier and drier. And finally at the end, I remember sitting in the back of St. Matthew's Episcopal Church and God saying to me, Sean, choose which way are you going to go? I was trying to do the churchy things. I was serving on vestry. I was volunteering in my parish. 
but I wasn't serving God. And so I went from dry to dry, or finally to a breaking point where I had to choose. Choose life, choose water, choose Jesus, or not. I know I'm not alone in telling you that story, but I tell it to you because these things are deeply personal to us. Stories of dryness spiritually. And as we look at today's text, it's important to remember that that's no different from Jesus our Lord. Remember, Jesus, as he's on the cross, cries out what? Many things. But I thirst. I thirst in John's gospel. He says this to fulfill Psalm 22. Or if you're looking at the prayer book, verse 15 of Psalm 22. In the the Bible, it's verse 18, which reads, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my gums. The image of water is one that comes up throughout John's Gospel so many times. It's a sacramental element that the Gospeler uses because it's something that God uses to show regeneration and life a spring of life in a barren land. Something physical that reflects a spiritual reality. Today's gospel lesson is packed rich with those elements pointing to Jesus' mission to humanity, Jesus to provide, providing living water to those in a barren land, which is everyone. The place of the story the setting, that is, is, well, is a well outside of town, outside of the town of Sychar, or Seeker, in Samaria, and then in the heat of the sun. Jesus is traveling with his, with his disciples, and he's traveled probably close to 20 miles at this point from Judea, if you do the geography. The disciples have gone from him. They've gone off to get some food. And Jesus is tired alone, and thirsty. There are so many observations and lessons that we can take from this story, from this passage. But let's just look at a few. Number one, why is Jesus in Samaria? Why does he, quote, have to pass through Samaria? Samaria is not a desirable country to pass through. It's inhabited by what was left of the northern tribes of Israel who had intermarried with the pagans that came with the Assyrian invasion of the 8th century B.C. If you want to read more about that, I commend 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18 to you. In the Old Testament, you can read all about where the Samaritans come from. Not only had the Samaritans intermarried with pagans and adopted some of their customs, But in 400 B.C., they'd built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim to worship God there. And that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 21. So why is Jesus passing through Samaria? And why is he sitting here at the well in the sixth hour, that is noon, in the scorching sun alone? As he later tells us, he is doing his Father's will. He's doing His Father's will. 
John, the evangelist, highlights the setting and the atmosphere as a place of desolation and isolation. Jesus is a spiritual wellspring in a desert. He's the spring of living water out of which that, that Jeremiah speaks of in chapter 2, verse 13. He's also the one that brings life through water and the Spirit in the sacrament of baptism. In John's Gospel, the story of this woman comes directly after John the Baptist meets Jesus and exalts him, lifting him up with the words, He who comes from above and is above all. Chapter 3, verse 31, just prior to this passage. John also makes the point that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, quoting Jesus. Also important is Jesus' disciples have been baptizing just immediately prior to this passage in chapter 1 of verse 4. But at first we see none of that. We just see a Jewish rabbi alone at a well. Now let's look at the Samaritan woman together. Tired, alone, and thirsty, parched by the sun, is the physical reality of this setting into which the Samaritan woman enters to meet Jesus. Jesus and the woman share a common humanity. But unlike Jesus, the woman's entire spiritual life is barren and sun-parched. Verse 7 tells us that she's from Samaria, and verse 20 confirms that her identity is a Samaritan, unlike Jesus. From the Jewish ceremonial view, she was considered unclean. The identity of this woman as a Samaritan is already a mark against her. The Samaritans were considered traitors, those that had abandoned their heritage, those that had abandoned God and his proper worship at the temple. The woman had been living with and sleeping with six different men, one right after the other sequentially. Of the first five, we don't know whether they had, been, whether they had died or whether they divorced her, but we do know from D.A. Carson, who comments on this, that rabbinic law disapproves of more than three marriages. And this woman's more than doubled that. Those are the ones she's married. This is probably the reason that the woman is here, by the well, by herself, in the heat of the noonday sun, where nobody wanted to go. She's there at this time because no one else wanted to be with her, because no one else would be there, because she was isolated as well as tired and parched. There she could be alone in her shame. And Jesus knows all this when he places himself at Jacob's well at this moment. He sees this woman's sin. He sees her chronic sinful behavior, as we will see, and he doesn't ignore it. In fact, this is the divinely revealed secret that is her sinful behavior, her having six husbands, for which she proclaims his greatness as a prophet. On the human level, 
though, Jesus also knows her thirst. He sees that as a human being, she is both physically and spiritually tired, thirsty, and alone. Next, Jesus does something that's strange in his culture. He engages her in conversation. What's more, he asks her if she can help him get some water. That's odd, asking her if she can help him. Look at with me at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Jesus is breaking all kinds of social norms and rules, speaking with this woman. And asking her for water also broke rules. Because she's a Samaritan, her fetching water for him would have made him unclean ritually. Third, the woman's immorality, with which her appears, by, for which her peers won't even associate her with, completely cuts her off from a holy man like Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher of the law. But of course, we know, also from John's Gospel, that when Jesus is baptized and when Jesus comes into contact with other people, he's not made unholy, but makes them holy. And she's astounded, however, in verse 7, just as the disciples are in verse 27, that Jesus would even talk to her. All kinds of questions must have sprung up in her mind. We get a little bit of a sense of that from the reading, but it's hard for us to put ourselves in the place of a first century Jew. Why is he doing this? The answer is simple. Jesus sees a fellow human being thirsty for God. He wants to quench her thirst, to take away her loneliness, and replace her tiredness, her weariness, with life new life, for that is God's mission to the world. It's a strong theme in the book of John that God came down and dwelt among us. His book begins with that theme that we read at Christmas, the Johannine prologue, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He dwelt with us. Jesus tells Nicodemus that a man must be born from on high, just in the last chapter. And John the Baptist has already stated, as I already said here, that this man comes from above, who is above all. Here we see him take the next step in that redeeming act, not just coming to the world, but going to the thirsty, the tired, and the, weir the, tired <clears throat> and the lost. In this passage, we see definitively that Jesus is both fully human as well as fully God, something else that John's to told us. And in this unique capacity as being fully human and fully God, Jesus is able to identify with this woman in her humanity, in her weariness, in her thirst, while at the same time, offering her a divine gift that originates at the bottomless spring, the well of living water himself.
Look at verses 10 and 13 and 14. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jumping down to verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That is, the water of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus here is using this element of water to speak of something more, something spiritual, something sacramental. And the fact, the entire conversation here between the Samaritan woman and Jesus has an element of water, use, uses the element of water to a double meaning. If you pay attention to the structure of what's going on here, it's a dance. It's this back and forth dance. Let me show you a little bit. Jesus is thirsty physically, waiting at the well. The woman is thirsty physically too, but is thirsty spiritually. Jesus offers living water and eternal life to quench her spiritual thirst. The woman speaks of her continual need to return to the well for physical reasons. But you see the parallel on the spiritual plane too. Jesus addresses the fact that those who have living water will never thirst again. Next, they change places. Jesus confronts the woman with her physical sin. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. Well, that's awkward, Jesus. He knows her situation. Jesus speaks of the woman's fleshly or physical sins, presumably fornication and adultery at the very least. But the woman speaks about her spiritual sins. Did you catch that? The woman speaks about her spiritual sins concerning worship. Look at verses 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And there it is. There is the living water. There is the extension of Jesus drawing from Himself, giving her living water, the water of worship, to parch her spiritual dryness. You see, whether the woman recognizes what she's saying or not, she's participating in this dance. Some commentators think that she's trying to avoid the subject of her sin. I don't think so. Or if she is, God uses it at least. For when she speaks about her spiritual sin, her spiritual want of worship, she puts her finger on the deeper issue. And Jesus knows it. 
I think what the woman is doing here, and this is just me, I think she's bearing her soul to Jesus. And whether she knows it or not, she's explaining to him why she's engaging in these other fleshly sins. You see, if you're dry spiritually, you're going to try to put all sorts of things into the place of God in order to get relief, in order to get satiated, in order to quell and quench your desires. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. And I think that's what she's telling him here. But Jesus extends to her that offer of what she truly desires. What Jesus is doing here is giving her the opportunity to return to God, to come back and worship God in spirit and in truth, for it's worship that's most important. Worship is what shapes our morality, not the other way around. Worship God truly, and the rest will follow. As an Anglican priest, an Oxford professor, renowned scholar R.H. Lightfoot writes, she, that is the woman, is able to express her conviction that one will come, and having come, will make all things clear. And this enables the Lord to direct her forthwith to the object of her hope. He of whom she had spoken is now present and is talking with her. She's face to face with God. Look at verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And what's he referencing? He's referencing himself as the Messiah, but more as the Christ, but more the revealer and restorer of all things. He's the source of the living water. He's what she's been desiring. He's the object of her hope that she hasn't found yet. And here he is in her presence, face to face, being the Messiah as well as the Son of God. At this point, the disciples return in verse 28. And we see that the woman left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And so in this interaction, this woman's reaction to Jesus is one of adoration and worship. The woman leaves her water jug. She's in such a hurry to tell other people who she's found, to tell other people about the source of the water that's quenched her thirst. She's inviting other people, just as the prophet Isaiah prophesies in chapter 12, verse 3, when the Old Testament prophet writes this, With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim his name is exalted. Later on, this woman and many Samaritans in the town see Jesus not as a prophet, 
but the Savior of the world. It's not in our assigned reading today, but look with me, if you will, if you have your Bibles, at John chapter 4. Because John does what he often does in his gospel and takes a little interlude between the beginning and the end of the story. So if you have your Bible, look with me at John chapter 4, but verse 39 through 43. Many Samaritans from that town believed, John writes, in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is not, the, not just the Messiah, but look what they say, the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. The Savior of all peoples, of all things. It's hard for us to see just how amazing this is. That Jesus stays in the Samaritan town and converses with them. And this is their response. And John wants us to see that and compare it to those supposed faithful Jews and their response in his gospel. It's a really exciting thing to see what God does in John's gospel. And dear friends, it's just as an exciting thing today. It's no small thing that God accomplishes in this passage, and he accomplishes the same today. What God is still doing and desires for you and I to participate in is something that should not make us afraid, but should embolden us. As St. Paul proclaims in the first lesson that Jesse read to us, if God is for us, who can be against us? The first thing we need to understand is that God comes to each of us as he came to the Samaritan woman. At some point in our lives, we turned, or perhaps you have yet to turn, away from worshiping false things, away from your sinful behavior, and out of a thirst, embrace true worship of God in spirit and in truth. Maybe a relief of some pain, or maybe you're looking for something real, but that desire in you is there to worship God in spirit and in truth. And like the woman, perhaps you tried to find the end of your hope and fulfillment, other fulfillments. Perhaps like me, you tried to find that fulfillment in other things in this life by running away from God. But the fact is that just as you and I have done that, so have all people around us. You see, there's no person who's ever been created that has not thirsted for God. Did you know that? There's no person that's ever been created that has never thirsted for God. Humans are created to crave God, for only He can quench or slake their thirst spiritually. You've been there. I've been there. And knowing that, we can know that our friends and neighbors who do not know Jesus yet or worship God in spirit or truth are there 
There's no exception. You don't need divine knowledge like Jesus had in order to make that assertion. All people who don't know the Lord are thirsty, are tired, and are alone. You also don't need to have a theology degree to have a conversation about this thing. But you do, and I do, need to reflect on how God met you and how God meets me and has met us in those times. Because you need to be able to express those experiences to other people. That's part of what Jesus calls us to do in the Great Commission. Now, you're not the Son of God, but you are a son or a daughter of God, for you have the Holy Spirit, and you have access to that well that overflows from within you in having the Holy Spirit. In her book, Stay Salt, evangelist Becky Pippert writes, Jesus demonstrated that to relate well to people, we must radically be identified with people in love and yet radically different in holiness. Our challenge is to go into the world, as Jesus did, she continues, identifying with people without compromising our integrity as God's people. That's a difficult thing to practice, isn't it? Reaching out with the good news of Jesus is easy in theory and is difficult in practice because being a practitioner of the faith is not about knowledge or having read lots of sermons or heard lots of sermons. It's about practicing, about being a good practitioner. Just like a doctor practices medicine. You know, new doctors come out of medical school and they have these internships, right? Residencies, I think they call them. We used to call doctors practitioners. I don't know if we still call them that anymore. But the whole point is that you come out and you might have all the knowledge, but until you start practicing with living human beings, until under the tutelage of a practiced doctor, you start engaging in your vocation, in your call, you're still going to be a newbie. And you might do more harm than good. That's the fear that we all have, right? I, I mean, that's the fear that I have. I can't speak for you. Dear friends, you have the ultimate overseer, the ultimate practitioner, Jesus, the Jesus of the woman of the well and the Holy Spirit inside of you, guiding you in these things. Jesus doesn't create human beings to have a thirst for him. He creates them to be satiated or slaked by him and him alone. And it's in that intent, dear friends, that we have our strength for we carry with us spiritual water for dryness of soul. The spiritual life, what St. Ignatius calls the medicine of immortality. Later on in the Gospel, Jesus says in John 7:37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is really important because as Jesus, as we see for Christians, it means that you and I have that backstory. We know the situation of what's going on in addition to having the practitioner training us. Every human being 
in this world that doesn't know the Lord, every human being is alone and thirsty and tired. Every human being is weary. We know that with certainty. Do you believe that? And do you believe that Jesus is the answer for it? Because it's not what most people believe. Even amongst the church, many people look at us and our faith as just one remedy among many. But the Christian gospel is that Jesus is the only remedy, the only water. And if you believe that, it changes how you practice your faith. Because it's not just one among many wells or one source among many other things. If we believe that we have the source of living water, period, it's going to change how we practice our faith, how we act, how we interact with other people. You see, Jesus is bold with the Samaritan woman. The conversation that he has with her could have gone off the rails at any moment. It almost does, right? It seems that dance, that back and forth, it seems like things are really bobbing and weaving there for a while. But Jesus takes it to the end. He's persistent in his supreme confidence that he has what she needs. He is the living water. Friends, the thing is, Jesus didn't need to be God to have that insight. Oh yes, he needed to be God to know her sins. He did not need to be God to have the insight that she needed living water. We share that with him in our knowledge of the human estate. And we also share with him that we have access to the font of living water. And so what stops us? What stops us? What keeps us away from having these conversations with other people? Is it a lack of care? I don't think so. I know most of you. I know that if you saw somebody out on the corner that was dying for a cup of water, you'd probably stop and give them a bottle of water. That's your heart. I know that. Most days I would too, on my better days. But do we have that kind of confidence spiritually? It's not a lack of care, I don't think. But if it is, I ask you to address it. Is it convenience? We have at our disposal today the most amount of resources and time in all of history. I want to say that again to you. You have the most amount of resources and time in all of history. You don't think so, because you busy your lives with all sorts of stupid crap. So do I. I was just talking with Leah last night about all the time I've wasted on my smart smartphone. I'm thinking about just throwing it away. You ever get those screen reports? Take a look at that. How many hours are you on it? You have the most time. You're not some farmer trying to scrape a living like even a hundred years ago. A couple, you know, Lakewood was, there was an orchard, was a farm a couple hundred years ago where people were trying just to survive. That's not you. That's not me. Is it really a lack of time and, or inconvenience? You've got the Bible on your phone. I mean, the phone works both ways, right? You've got the prayer book on your phone. You've got access to multiple translations of the Bible with you. I think for most of us, it's not that. It's a lack of confidence 
in our skill, perhaps a lack of conviction behind what we believe. Lent and Easter tide is a time to remedy that. It's a season where we're as a congregation addressing our lack of confidence together. And we're going to be addressing our lack of skill. Perhaps today, take the small step and address any lack of conviction that you might have. That you have the source of all life within you, welling up as living water. If you've gone to other supposed wells in your life, perhaps even now, Return to the well of living water. Repent, as we say during Lent. Return to Jesus, the true well, the true life, the true font of every blessing. This week, meditate on just what it is that Jesus has given you. Sometimes when we've been Christians for a long time, we forget that. What is it that Jesus has given you? Just go through and, and, and write those things out. Take a piece of paper or a notebook or a journal, whatever you do. You could even use your phone. Why are you a follower of Jesus? How is he satiating you even now? Where has he met you in your rough places in life? How has he given living water to you that you might live? He has, dear friends. And he will. The first step is being convinced, being solid in your conviction that you hold that living water within yourself. For unless you understand that, you can't share it with others. Dear friends, let us meditate on that together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.